0: Hey, this is Matt Markin, and welcome to another episode of the Adventures in Advising Podcast. Thank you for listening and supporting this podcast. Each episode, we strive to bring together the global academic advising community to share knowledge, best practices, and, of course, advising stories. Make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Advising Podcast. Without further ado, here's the latest episode. And as always, keep advising. (music)
1: Hello and welcome to Adventures in Advising with me, Colm Cronin. And hey, greetings and salutations. This is Matt Markin and welcome to episode 24 of
0: the podcast. Happy December to all. Just a few weeks away from the end of 2020 and the start of 2021. We are almost there. Let's not take any more time. Let's dive right into our interviews. We have two great interviews for episode 24 with George Steele and JP Via Vicencio. Which one are we starting off with?
1: And the first of those is with George Steele. George is a leading expert on flipped advising. And in this interview, he outlines the background and development of the approach and explains some of its central tenets.
0: Alrighty, let's get on to the first guest of this podcast episode, and that is with George Steele. George has held a variety of leadership positions in higher education. George served as the Executive Director for the Ohio Learning Network. Prior to his work at OLN, George directed the advising program at The Ohio State University for undecided and major-changing undergraduate students. He led a team in the mid-90s that placed the advising materials, exploration course content, and some services online. Building on the work of Dr. Virginia Gordon, the leading expert in this field of advising, the program and efforts received numerous national awards. In his professional work, George has written publications addressing academic and career advising theory, use of technology and advising, and assessment of the use of technology for student services and distance learning. He has also presented at various conferences that address issues parallel to his publication topics. George has been a member of the NACADA, the Global Community for Academic Advising, for over 30 years. He has held numerous leadership positions in that organization and has been recognized for his work and contributions. George has been recognized with the Service to Nakata and the Virginia and Gordon Awards. Currently, he is working with the Nakata Executive Office and creating online training tutorials for Nakata members. George holds a bachelor's, master's, and doctorate degrees in education from The Ohio State University. In his graduate work, he focused on teaching and learning, American history, and the use of technology in learning. So there you have it, George. Hello there. Hello, Matt. How are
1: you? Calm. How are you? We're delighted to get the opportunity to chat to you on the the podcast, and uh, we we will have a, a host of, of things to discuss. I mean, Matt has read out a, a very distinguished uh, bio uh, for you there, and I think one of the things that we like to talk to our guests about is, I suppose, that the bio kind of outlines the you know the the where you are but what mm-hmm. we want to talk about is is the how and the why so could you take us through a little bit of your your journey into the world of higher ed and how you came to work in the field of advising george
2: well thank you um thank you both first of all for um inviting me to participate in this and uh I've talked with you both several times, many times before. And so I am very touched by the fact that you've asked. Um, probably like a lot of folks, I did not really anticipate going into higher ed. Uh, I was starting out actually as a social studies ed teacher, history teacher, and taught uh, uh, in the area of middle school and 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 uh, high school here in the States for about three years. But I never really got a job uh because – um the field was too crowded. So I spent three years doing substitute teaching. Now that was penance for the way I taught substitute teachers when I was a kid. So I did that for three years. And I really decided at that point that I needed to get a real job. And so I went back to school thinking that I could move forward. And But eventually when I got through my, my doctorate program, I was cl- uh, finishing up And I needed about two more quarters to finish my dissertation and my funding in my department had run out. And I had a very, very good friend, um, who said, well, I know where there's a graduate assistant associate position available. I said, well, very good. Where do I apply? Um, because at this point I didn't care. Um, and it was in university college as a graduate teaching associate. And the person who interviewed me was Virginia Gordon. And for whatever reason, we hit it off. Um, I was very much interested in looking at curriculum and instruction. I was using the Myers-Briggs type indicator to see how an alternative high school uh, um, and their curriculum interacted with their students based upon MBTI and why the students liked it. And basically most of the students were all intuitive. I mean, 70% of them were. And, and so what they liked about it was the idea that there was constant change and and they had a control over the curriculum, uh, what they ended up by taking and teaching uh, being taught. So, you know, it was, it was great. And she was enthusiastic about that. And she, so she hired me and the rest is history. Um, I had never met a educator before who was as gifted as she was. Um, you know, if you go through schooling, you end up by having a lot of folks talking about teaching and learning. But even the first day I sat in, I observed her teach because I was on an off quarter. So I didn't get through the traditional program of, of uh, training that most people go through. It was a three week training period. So she had me follow her around. And you just saw the way she taught all this stuff over the years that I had, you know, struggled with trying to put theory into practice. She's up there just doing it like this. And it was like, oh, that's how you do it. And she kept on changing the format. She would go in and she would start... With was like a brief little five-minute, five-question survey to get students involved doing a set induction, and then she would raise a topic, and then she would uh, give them a, a, a little exercise, group exercise. So within this, like, 50-minute period of time, she was constantly changing the instructional approach, what we're supposed to do, and... She just did it naturally. And so it was. I was overwhelmed, and uh, I was just fortunate that we uh, stayed together. And um, like I said, she hired me as a full-time advisor then. And uh, when she retired, she um, saw that, you know, asked me to uh, run the program um, after her. So, uh, yeah, it was great. And then she introduced me to Nakata. And, in fact, um, you know, one of the stories I like to tell is that, you know, Virginia – is well known for being, uh, devoted to developmental advising, but she always used prescriptive advising on me. <laughs> <laughs> you will write this paper, George. <laughs>
0: oh, that's a great story. And, and I think, you know, a, a lot of people knew Virginia and a lot of people know of her name. Um, can you talk more about Virginia's work in Nakata and then also what it meant to get the Virginia Gordon Award It was touching to get the Virginia
2: Gordon Award because um, um, she was my mentor um, Virginia really and, and you know, we had, had been able to dedicate an entire journal article about two back on Virginia Gordon and mm-hmm. she was a you know teacher scholar administrator. I mean, she was a whole ball of wax, ball of wax. Um, and she uh, was a great mentor not only to me but for everybody in Nakata. I, I don't know of um, um, folks who met her who were not touched by her and encouraged by her to be be as as good as possible um, and and to push themselves professionally. Uh, encouragement, you know, the old. Bottom line was advising about challenge and support, right? Challenge and support. And she was able to do those both very, very well. Um, but, I mean, she she really did think that uh, advising was a profession. And I, I think that she and some of the folks that started Nakata for the first time were those that actually thought that it could be a profession and to begin to go down that path of saying well what do we need to be in order to be a profession we need the scholarship uh, we need the uh, the research in this area and multiple areas in order to, to help move us along now the area that she was really good at and I in my article about her in that journal article I talk about the fact that uh, I think one reason why we got along so well together is that we were both graduated from Ohio State the College of Education and she a little bit more because she graduated about maybe uh, eight years earlier than I did. But um, it it was well known for being a bastion of progressive education, American progressive education. Uh, John Dewey, uh, you know, they used to say, you know, John Dewey was God and the dean was his prophet. So, but, you know, at the end of the day, what you had there was a a school that had a tradition and and thought uh, that really and, and to me, the essence of it was, was that there is a balance constantly between teaching and the learning subject matter and students' interest. And and so the, the, the key was that you couldn't emphasize more, one over the other, but at the same time, you had to draw upon the students the interest, their abilities, their skills in order to interact with the content. And this is what she did so beautifully, as I was talking earlier. Um... And, and it, to me, it was just natural. But she was also very good. She was in counselor ed, her PhD program. So what she also was able to do, and I think that from this, uh, possibly also helped set up uh, some of the fundamental things about an advising curriculum. And that she borrowed from the, the, the counseling type of background, and she was able to integrate it with a curricular and instructional type of an approach. Uh, and so I, I I know that Matt, you've taken one or two of those e tutorials and and we, we know what the basis of those are about, don't we <laughs> I mean it, it basically what we're trying to do with those e tutorials yes, is to to blend that type of, of approach where you have the content but you also have the curricular and instructional type of approach and do it in a pedagogical way that it's based upon critical thinking. So, yeah, I mean, I'll tell you what, I I mean, I was fortunate. Nicod asked me to do some of those e-tutorials, but I know that I wouldn't have been able to do them without, you know, Virginia in my ear still saying, now, why are you doing that? (laughs)
1: And George, maybe before we kind of delve into your own work, I think one of the things, I think your your bio mentioned you've been involved with Nakata for, in around 25 years. I suppose, how have you seen the organization develop and and change in that time?
2: Uh, It started out very decentralized because, again, you know, there wasn't a... um, executive office, per se. Um, When Bobby Flaherty became the director, I think she had a limited staff, maybe two or three people, um, out of the continuing ed office at at KSU. Um, And it was so very, very decentralized. And so it really relied upon members uh, getting together and, and, uh, you know, doing things. For example, you know, Virginia started the National Clearinghouse for Academic Advising, which eventually morphed into the Nakata Clearinghouse for Academic Advising. and um, But there were these type of one-offs that people would do separately. Right now, what you see, and, and again, this is, thank goodness for the leadership of Charlie Nutt, um, it's much more centralized, it's much more coordinated. The executive office is there to do a lot of the type of work uh, to help the members still achieve those type of individual efforts uh, and contributions but they don't have to do everything by themselves. And so there's a nice balance now in in terms of, it it really is more of an organization uh, that has a guiding function, the executive office to it that uh, was not there when we first started out. And, you know, again, it was small. I mean, Nakata, um, first couple ones I went to now, I I didn't start attending until 87, I think was my first one, but um, you know, it, uh you know, the conference is about the size of a regional conference now. <laughs> I mean, I know region five is bigger than what the, the uh, Dakota's first couple ones were. And, you know, you may have had 400 people there, 300 people there. And, and, and so on one level, um, what you ended up having, I think was a lot more intimacy with everyone who was part of the national organization, uh, you just knew everybody because there wasn't that many around. <laughs> so it was, it, was, it was a great organization. I mean, I, 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 have uh, consider myself very much blessed, fortunate um, that Nakata has been around uh, because it has helped me immensely as a professional, just to be able to be in a community of people that share your values share your interests and people you can go to for support and have conversations and, and actually do things together. To me, that's the most important thing is the uh, ability to be able to reach out and do collaborative type of work.
0: Yeah, and you were mentioning the e-tutorials. And so um, I've done a few of them and two of them, you were the facilitator for for, for it. So uh, the first one was 2018. It was the technology one. And then most recently mm-hmm. the flipped advising um, e-tutorial and i found them very beneficial oh thank you it it's something where it, it's nice to know that whoever's facilitating it is really reviewing the work that's being done whether it's the discussion post or any of the homework assignments um and then really getting some really great feedback and critiques on it um i will say my last assignment on the t- technology one on the discussion i got a six out of ten but uh Thanks, George. You know, (laughs) I'm rough. (laughs) Well, I was doing great. So um, last night I was actually going back through and looking at some of these assignments and I was like, I was getting, you know, 10 out of 10s on these. And that last one, I can't blame you. I just got lazy on it, honestly. But um, But you still passed. That's the important thing. You passed. Yes, I still (laughs) passed. I got my certificate. I got like a 96% on it. So I'm really, really happy with that. Good. Man, I would have felt really badly if it was otherwise. (laughs) But how did did it come about, uh, you working with the uh, Nakata on creating these e-tutorials? How do you decide on what topics are covered and what's been the feedback so far from those that have uh, taken the e-tutorials?
2: I think generally positive. One is you got to do a shout out to, you know, Alyssa uh, Schaefer um, mm-hmm. and she, I mean, initially I, I proposed doing these to Jennifer Joslin and we did a few trial and error ones first up front. And then um, E took over and has been a great uh, collaborator uh, uh, working on these, the coordination, and everything else. And, and she's taking over more of the administrative because they've developed and other people have developed ones too she's developed one and um, let me see uh, come to me in a second but I know that other folks have developed them but for me the the entire notion was um, something that I enjoy is uh, I think whenever you teach all right there was an old expression was that you you don't even understand what teaching is about until your third year (sighs) And, I mean, you just survive for the first three, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, but you get to a point where all of a sudden, you know, the metacognitive functions begin to kick in, and you start going, oh, I know not know why I'm doing that. Yeah, that makes sense mm-hmm. now. Boy, mm-hmm. I could have V V8. And so you go through this entire process of, of, of learning and, and beginning to understand it better. And so to me, what was um, the thing I enjoy is working with the professional who has got three, four, five years in, and they're, they're making that next step. Mm -hmm. And they're moving onward to a new professional plane in terms of their development, in terms of their thought processes. And, but also, and I think that what I find very important, not only their involvement uh, professionally, not only in, in Nakata, but also on their campus. And I think that there, it requires a different type of skill set, knowledge base, and everything else to make that that jump. So, for me, just being a part of that process is very rewarding. And I uh, again appreciate the fact that Nakata gives me a chance to um, participate in it and be one of the many um, instructors who are part of it. And there are a lot of really good folks who do that. And again, they're uh, they, they, they're fun, good group, really good group
3: stay with us we'll be right
2: back cracking the college admissions code just got easier i'm rebecca gordon your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous tune into the admissions game satire edition and uncover my top secrets for sure fire ivy league admission ditch the old photoshop your face onto a water polo hunk trick we reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with the admissions game, wherever you podcast.
1: Yeah, I think we're, we're fortunate uh, that Nakata has so many great groups and uh, so, many, so much good work going on uh, around the, the EO. Now, George, Matt mentioned in your bio that you directed the advising program at Ohio State for undecided and major changing undergraduate students. And I suppose I come from a system in Ireland and, and the UK, I think, as well, where it's much more of a train track, right? Once the student is in, if they're doing engineering, they're basically doing engineering um, classes and there's they're very, very little choice. It's broadened a little bit, I feel, maybe even over the, the past five years or so, but we're still really much the, the, the train track. So I'm interested, I suppose, in, in hearing a little bit more about your work with that um cohort of, of students and i suppose
2: advising that cohort of students in general well i think that um first yet is you, you did a very nice job of setting up what the environment and the culture is in the uk and ireland and i also believe in australia um probably new zealand too i'm not familiar with that but um in the states not all institutions, but many four-year institutions have an approach where students are admitted to the institution, but they aren't admitted to their program. And what occurs is that um, when we were working with the undecided students, these are students who come in admitting that they were undecided, or else what we used to call the, the truthful students. And so they would be the ones that we would be working with. They're usually about anywhere from 15 to 25% of the incoming Freshman class, first year class, and um, the goal was was to help them through the two hundred undergraduate majors that we had at Ohio State uh, find one that they uh, were interested in by doing a number of different things with them in terms of uh, curricularly and instructionally um, helping them make their decisions. So the entire thing was based upon decision making. Uh, What occurred was that though the majors at Ohio State that started to become much more selective. And so your particular your business type of majors uh, or your I mean professional types of majors like business, like engineering, the medical, health profession areas. And so student A and Ohio State, they had to take the pre-coursework. And then oftentimes they needed a particular type of GPA in order to apply and get in. A lot of times they also might have needed a portfolio. Well, what was occurring was that students at the end of their freshman year or the end of their sophomore years were applying and getting rejected from these programs. What do you do with them? And, you know, Virginia, uh, in her book, you know, talks about those who are um, undecided as being unwilling or unable to make a decision at times. Uh, What we found a lot of times with these students who had hit this wall, um, Marcia did some work on this. They were foreclosed, basically, the the notion being is that this is my goal. This is my life. This is what I've always wanted to be. And now where are you going? And so like a little bit of like Schlossberg's going to plan B um, and that element of going to plan B uh, is almost like, you know the the death and dying type of things. First the anger, and then the, the you know all all through the steps. And so what we found was that it sometimes took one or two quarters really for these students to get their heads back together again, uh, and with help, you know, intensive help, um, and to help redirect them. And uh, we got some flack from it, but you know some of the cases were, you know, if if. Their, their choice was to stay in the, the major that they wanted to, they would have had to transfer out of Ohio state and go to another institution. And we didn't frown on that. Um, and, and, you know, we did a number of studies and uh, w- what always interested me was the fact um, that the largest group of people who um, were women, actually who wanted to go into elementary ed or nursing and they They wanted it to be that, and there's probably a lot of social, cultural type of issues uh, associated to why that was the case. But uh, And this, again, was in the 90s. I'm not sure it would be quite as strong as it was today. It was kind of interesting seeing how that entire thing played out. Um, But, again, I mean, it was a, a program designed. And, again, going back to what Virginia was really good at and what we tried to carry throughout the program, was the idea of decision making. And to me, you know, that's what we're doing with flipped advising too. It's putting students in a position of helping them make decisions by looking at accurate information, by helping them break down the process so that it's not one big holistic, oh my God, what am I going to do type of situation, but helping them break it down into parts so that they can deal with the value side of it, their interest side of it and so on and and move forward. Um, with their planning, so that the entire thing has been internalized, so that an internal motivation as opposed to an extrinsic motivation at this point, and so there's a lot of reasons why students hit that um, that gate of not laying them in their majors. But we also had students who had, were advanced undecided too, and again, in, in some cases, and you know, all you have to do is go back and look at a lot of the work that Virginia did on uh, subtypes of undecided students. Um, you know, ranging from the idea, again, you know, people stereotype on the side. But, you know, we, we all met this student. This is the honor student who has so many options, they can't figure out what they want to do. And all the way down to the student who has difficulty making any type of decision. And so running that gambit between those two points... Um, you know, is is that entire way of adjusting and adapting and trying to find ways in order to work with those students. And so many of our students who were in the alternatives program were um, those students who were advanced undecided, too. And they, they just always have had difficulty making decisions. So that, that's sort of the gambit. Does that help? Yeah. Okay,
0: Great. Now, you, you mentioned flipped advising, and I think that could be something we could talk about. Uh, for those that don't know, can you describe a little bit more like what flipped advising is? What would be an
2: example of it? To me, flipped advising, I kid around. I, I say Virginia is the, the godmother of flipped advising at times because basically it was her approach. And I think that the, the key for me with the flipped advising approach is that it's a curricular instructional approach to advising. It's not good enough for advising, be advising as teaching. It also has to be advising as teaching and learning. So we really have to see how students are progressing. And then going back to the Nakata concept of advising, I mean, we, we have learning outcomes. Advising is intentional. Um, advising is, has a pedagogy, and that's critical thinking. And you combine activities, learning outcomes, and the evaluation, and that's the advising curriculum. And so basically what it's trying to look at is the idea of of building upon what Virginia was doing back in the 80s and we were doing the 90s with website and stuff at Ohio State. But it's the notion that you could help students with the decision-making process. And in many ways, to me, it's like using old-fashioned workbooks, (laughs) You know, remember when the, and the teachers would say, okay, you know, answer these three questions first and then look at this, reflect upon this response. You know, this is, again, nothing new. Um, everything, you know, new is old or everything old is new again, right? Um, and so what this does with the flipped advising approach, though, is that it really helps, I think, in terms of the advising process, because one is we can begin to structure these things within the learning management system which is the common tool they use with the rest of their classes. Um, it is also a case where we now have evaluation of their decision-making process where we can go back and see how they made decisions and comment upon it. We could also end up by lining it up in such a way that we're using content that we need and spacing it out and and, and see use scope and sequencing it over time rather than saying, well, it's on the website. Yeah, I I know it's on the website. And 30 years ago, they said it was in the course offerings book. And students didn't understand it then, and they sometimes don't understand it now. You know, why, pointing just to information, do we assume that students are going to have an understanding of it? And so what we're trying to do is to break that process down so that uh, they can be more successful and begin to help them with that, that idea of taking small bites of it, which is an important decision for them to make. Um, whether it's about how to be a successful student, whether it's about policies, procedures at the institution, campus resources, or, you know, what major do you want to go into? What career you want to go into? So there's a lot of different type of topic areas that are part of that curriculum that we can develop this way. And finally, for me, I think what's important is, all well, three things about with Flipped is that I, I think one It helps students with that decision-making process I've, I've stated. Two, it gives us direct evidence of student learning. And I can't emphasize this enough. In an age where many institutions are being run by return on investment models, and what we're trying to do with advising is find the most effective and efficient way to deliver at the lowest cost, As long as that is driving a lot of the decision-making people for the people higher up the food chain, we have to be able to start showing how we can carve out that space of advising by saying that the decision-making process, having students internalize their decisions and being internally motivated to pursue them is really a pretty good way to address retention and maybe completion, as opposed to having advisors externally pick them up as they fall off their pathway and constantly ending up by trying to say, okay, well, you fell off the conveyor belt for this major. You have to get back on. And by the way, you fell off two spots. So we have to get you back ahead. And so that entire business model, return on investment. And so what I'd like to see in time is that with flipped advising is that Both of those, and and I'm not complaining about, you know, return on investment models because those are important. You know, the financial side is critical, but why can't we end up by having them both be viewed as important? And so to me, the third area then is the fact that if we can start doing that, I think that advising will gain greater respect because we will have evidence of what we do. Think about how we approach it now. Most of the measures we use are indirect measures about how we help students. And so we are put at the table then saying, well, what do you do? Well, I help students by doing this. Well, you talk to them, right? Well, so that's great. We love you. Pat you on the head, right? But at the end of the day, you're making decisions about, well, you know, um, if we assign it you know, an advisor load of 200 and they end up by cramming them into that, you know, the period of, of of registration over the 10-day period of time, they can end up by seeing each student for a period of, really? So I think the other thing that the flipped advising does too in terms of addressing that is that it creates a third space. And in fact, uh, with Emily McIntosh and David Gray, we just got a paper published called The Third Space. It's the asynchronous space. And I think particularly now in the time of COVID, we need to have a tool. If, if, if what we're doing is teaching and learning, why aren't we using a teaching and learning tool? It's not enough to do Zoom. Zoom is one-on-one advising face-to-face, and it's an attempt to, to replicate 20th century advising. And that's all we're doing. And if, if advising is only talking, I have a problem with that. Because at the end of the day, we know that good teaching requires multiple ways and channels of, in, of working with a student. And you know, God help the student who is the, the introvert <laughs> and has an extroverted advisor, you know um, it's ah! <laughs> so those multiple channels, I think are important and flipped advising provides that. And you have the asynchronous contact you, you, and so you're moving forward. So enough of that. So anyhow, no, it's interesting
1: because I, I, I see a reflection so much of what you were saying about Virginia Gordon and, and her kind of multi-pronged approach and, and how she used, you know, so many different techniques. And, and right. we're still seeing that, you know, now, but it's just that I, th- I guess that the technology has changed and we're looking probably at a different sort of data analytics. And I think Looking at that because I I know it's an area that that you've also um, studied and and written about in terms of technology and you you mentioned the the tool there but here here we are we're we're in the period of COVID we flipped to on mm-hmm. online learning and I know Matt and I have discussed right. this before about how. Things that were seemingly impossible for institutions suddenly became possible because they had to, because we were online. I suppose be interested in hearing, you know, your thoughts on technology and and the future of of advising as we move into, you know, a a, hopefully a a post COVID world. Ooh. um, I know that's a big big question.
2: I know. I was like, Whoa, <laughs> I'll have to think about this one. Um, no, I think that what we want to do is again, use multiple tools with our students. Um, I love zoom. I love early alert systems. Um, I love, uh, you know, the learning management systems. I love e-portfolios. So my goal is to integrate them all. At the end of the day, you know, I, I think that what I'd really like students to be able to do is tell their stories through an e-portfolio and work on it during their entire time there in college. And having the advising curriculum help them out with different stages of doing that story um, over time. Uh, you know, why did you become a nurse? And it may be different from one a freshman year to the sophomore year to the, on, on two on through the process. But we could also use the learning management system to help them out with some of the earlier parts of that to teach them how to do a good career exploration, how to do a good planning session, how to consider financial aid type of issues, perhaps, how to be a successful student, these different type of curricular topics. Early alert systems are great. But if early alert systems are, you know, you can use them to identify students who are in need and and pull them forward, wonderful. And so we have these tool sets that, combining with, um, you know, video, uh, calls, video conference calls, an advisor could have this wealth of information about the student, and going beyond institutional information, it's personal. It's what the student is saying, it's the per- student is thinking, what the student is feeling, and we can go forward from there and draw upon that and help students through that journey of telling their stories. And for, so for me, you know, at the end of the day, I think every advisor wants to help their students be able to tell their stories. That's why we go into this work. And the current system, particularly like now during COVID, I, I, my personal view, it's unsustainable over time. And it's unsustainable because advisors by their dedication are putting in these incredible long hours and, and seeing students all day long. And you guys know as well as I do. I mean, I I could do about three or maybe four at most zoom meetings during the day. And I get to the point where forget it, you know, I just zone out. And so I think that getting this tool set so that, Advisors can work synchronously and asynchronously with students and guide them through the process is, is what key is key. And I hopefully that's the direction we'll head. Um, you know, if, is you're right. And I agree with you both. Um, you know, COVID, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And so maybe we needed this in order to make the type of changes to really move advising from the 20th century and to the 21st. Because right now, if I think if you look at it, I would argue that what we first tried to do in the face of COVID was to replicate twentieth century advising and maybe now we can start really probing what twenty first century advising should be. Which can be scary, but I think it's also
0: something that's a great discussion to see where things could go because yeah. we keep hearing about we'll return to campus where things will go back to normal. And is there really going to be a normal after
2: this? No. I I don't do you? I mean I, I think that um At this point, I think there's going to be a lot of students who are going to be asking the fundamental question um, with the cost of college being so high. I need to work and I can save on room and board. So I want to go to your university. And I, I know, you know, all those things that occur outside the classroom are very important to development, very important to growth and student learning. I'm not going to argue against that. I'm all for it. But also you know, the, you, you do have the other side of the coin where students have their own concerns, their own limitations in terms of financial resources, uh, their own needs to address. And particularly now uh, when, you know, the, the traditional student is really an adult student on most campuses um, and people balancing multiple roles, adult roles, um, you know, it just seems to me that Um, the smart institution is going to be one that can walk and chew gum by doing both approaches.
1: Yeah, and I think building on what you said earlier we we need to i think look at i think what you said about when this first happened there was a a real temptation and i suppose natural temptation to just try to replicate the physical in the virtual but it doesn't it doesn't fit you know it's like it's like two in one it it, it won't work like two was created it needed to be and i think hopefully what we're seeing is a recognition that the virtual space is is different by its very nature, and so you need to address it in different ways. And students will interact with the virtual space in in different ways. And I think we're 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 seeing that, and and it is being addressed by you and and by others. And I I suppose you know kind of then like we we, we talked about the the cost and and it changing. For people out there listening, um, George, and you know, you you, you are um, an inspirational figure to too many. Uh, you know, you have given ple- plenty of keynotes, and people do say like, "Oh, George Steele's given the keynote," and people have said to us like, "You know, have George Steele on the podcast?" I suppose for advisors or for anyone, because we have listeners who aren't advisors but work supporting students. Are there, you know, what, what advice or or what uh, what, what hope um, can can or would you offer t- to them to to any of our listeners uh, as we we're drawing to the end of twenty twenty, moving into twenty twenty one?
2: Give them thanks for their dedication, um, and and this goes across everyone within higher education. But you know, sometimes advisors aren't necessarily recognized for the incredible amount of hard work that they ended up by doing, um, and. I think you find that across the board a lot of the helping professions, you know. It it's just, you know, it, it just is. People who are go into the helping professions um are a special type. Um that's why folks in cot are so much fun. And but I also think too is it people have now had a new experience, right? So we need to reframe that entire question of what we do on our campus and Basically, think deeply about the experiences that we've had and how we need to move forward because technology is going to be a part of our advisory from here on out um, in a more enhanced way. It always has been for the last 20 years, but a lot of it dealt with systems that the institutions ran. And then I think many advisors um, were very bold, and uh, you know my my friend Laura Pasquini did a great job, along with others, uh, Clay Schwin, all all uh, Kurt Zeist, and started talking about like social media, and it was an attempt by advisors to reach out and and communicate with their students, but with flipped, and I think that what I've been trying to do with my friends who are working with me on this, um, is to get to the point where we could move beyond just exchanging engagement with with students, but also, and and also having them be able to have the access to like online banking, but now it's called registration. You know, everyone has their own account at the institution and you can do all your little transactions uh, at a distance, but to move advising in that direction. And, you know, it's one of those things that Um, developing a different skill set, I think, for advisors and recognizing that they've already taken that first step. And that first step is that they're doing this right now. They are learning how to interact more with Zoom and everything else. And so it's to continue that journey. And what I'm really looking forward to personally is the number of people who are um, moving forward and, and, and taking different elements of flip and just running with it. Um, it's it's really um, to me amazing, and but it, it, again, you know when you start getting into it, and it sounds very complex and everything else. But at the end of the day, I mean, most people end up by coming to a point and saying, "Oh, there's nothing special. <laughs> i been doing this for years." <laughs> No, you're right. Yeah, you know it is, but it, it does. It it is different. Um, and so you know, great. <laughs> Move forward. It, it's it's great to be able to work at students at a distance. And and again, I mean, both you have have taken courses at a distance, and you know that it can be as personal as just face to face. It depends upon the instructor. At the end of the day, you could have an instructor who doesn't respond, doesn't pay attention. And, you know, you might as well be going through the course yourself. And you could do something with flipped or if the advisor is not paying attention, you might as well just be sending the students to the website by themselves. You need people who are willing to be engaged in the technology. So that's it. George,
1: I think this has been really fascinating for for us to, to get to hear uh, from you and, and have a, a little bit of a, a longer discussion with you. I think your passion for education shines through. And Matt and I did an episode um, a little while ago called um, Mentoring and uh, Transitions. And it was interesting, right, because I, I did say it earlier and I meant it that you are an inspirational figure for many um, within advising but to hear you talk about virginia gordon as your mentor shows i think the importance of mentorship for all of us and you know the, the fact that you've gone on to have the the career that you've had is a testament to you and to to her mentorship and i think for listeners they will take a lot from this be they advisors where you know it will be directly applicable to their work but I think anyone working in higher ed hearing about um, you know it it is about the, the student stories and and their journey and I think that for when Matt and I started the podcast the aim was to share the stories of advisors and those who worked in in higher ed so thank you for taking the time to share your
2: stories with us. Well, thank you for letting me share it and, and the questions, and it's been thoroughly enjoyable. And so um, I hope that we can meet again. It uh, doesn't need to be recorded. It's <laughs> it's always enjoyable talking with you both.
0: George, we had a blast talking with you. Always a pleasure. And we can't wait to see you in person at a feature conference. Much of my learning has come from the Nakata e-tutorials, and I highly recommend anyone to check those out. And you're in safe hands if George is one of the facilitators. There's plenty of choices from first-generation advising, theory and practice, understanding technology, flipped advising, and plenty more. And if you want to connect with George, email is the best way. George's email is, G Steele, so G S T E E L E, 1220 at gmail.com.
1: Our second interview is a great accompaniment to our first, and it's with JP Villavicencio, who has just submitted his doctoral thesis, which examined and explored flipped advising. But that's not all we discuss and I think our listeners will really enjoy our chat with JP.
0: All right, so to follow up our interview with George Steele, we have our good friend, JP Villavicencio. JP currently serves as the coordinator for the Pathway for Success program at the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater. In this role, he oversees all facets of the program, including academic advising, programming, course curriculum, and collaborating with campus partners. Including his current role, JP has been an academic advisor at the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater since 2014, but got a start in the field of advising as an undergrad when he served as a peer advisor. JP has been an active member of NACADA, the global community for academic advising, since 2014 and is serving as the interim chair for the Sustainable NACADA Leadership Committee and co-chair for the 2021 Virtual Region 3 and 5 Conference. He has also previously served as the Inclusion and Engagement Committee. JP has presented at numerous regional and annual conferences on topics including whether advising is a high-impact practice, having a growth mindset in advising, advising in Generation Z, and also flipped advising. JP has a strong passion for working with students and seeks to facilitate growth and development through their collegiate journey as it relates to their career, academic, and personal development. JP received his bachelor's degree in geography and environmental studies at the University of Wisconsin, master's degree in higher education leadership from the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater, and is currently pursuing his doctorate in educational leadership with a concentration of higher education and leadership studies at Edgewood College. His dissertation is titled Flipped Academic Advising, an Advising Approach within the Social Work Department at a Regional Comprehensive Four-Year University. He lives outside of Madison, Wisconsin with his wife, Lindsay, three children, Henry, Finnegan, and Aurora, and his dog, Indy. JP,
3: welcome to the podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here.
1: We're delighted to get the opportunity to have a chat with you. As Matt said, you are a friend of the show, and we have been looking to schedule a time. So, given you know what Matt has outlined in your bio, it's uh, we can understand why uh, finding a time that works for all of us, you know, has taken until now. But we are delighted to to welcome you. I suppose, JP, one of the things we, we always like to, to do is to talk to guests about how they got involved in advising, what their, their route into higher higher ed was. And I think we got a, a taster there um where we mentioned about working um as a as a peer or being a peer advisor. But can you talk to us about how you came to, to be an advisor?
3: Yeah, that's a fun story, that's for sure. Um so I give full credit to one of my mentors, Becky Ryan, um at the University of Wisconsin for like shining the light on the field as a profession. Uh So in my undergrad, I was in this first year residential learning community. Um, And then I did that my freshman year and then my sophomore year, I became a peer mentor there. And that's where I started to get to know Becky. And she's like, hey, by the way, this office, this advising office that actually had a solid office in that residence hall as well is looking for peer advisors. You should apply. So I did, got the job. I was in that residence hall as well. So it was kind of fun to continue uh, being there, working with those students that came through. And at the same time, I was bouncing between different majors. I was exploring my options, didn't really want know what to do. And I was just having a conversation with Becky. We were doing some career exploration activities. And through all of this, she just eventually turned to me and said, you know what I do is a job, right? That was the light bulb moment for me. Um, and from there it's like, all right, yes, I wanna do that. And so even though like my, my undergrad was in geography, and environmental studies, passions of mine, I just kind of finish up my undergrad experience, prepping myself to go into the next step and due to being like location bound, I ended up, up at Whitewater and just haven't left there actually. So that's the short version of my full uh, story of how I fell into the field. Was it one
0: where it's kind of like, you know, you were this peer peer advisor, so it's kind of just something where this is a job, I could put on my resume, didn't really think I'm gonna do anything with it. Then you kind of have someone that's like, hey, you know, this is something you can do as a career.
3: Yeah, absolutely. It was like I enjoy working with students and um it's like, yeah, it's just one way to continue doing that. And wasn't really thinking too far ahead until like literally is like my junior years when that meeting happened when I was still working when I was working there as a peer advisor. So it's like okay it's just like it's funny how uh we give people all these this advice all the time but we don't do it ourselves it just takes that external person to uh to shine the light on it in essence so that was it for me and were there any
0: uh, particular student populations that that you worked with when you were a peer advisor
3: yeah so that office uh across college advising service worked with um Undecided students was the assigned population. However, uh, having various satellite offices all across campus, I mean, you got students who would drop in across all majors. And so whether it's just those quick questions um, or just like uh, the this registration issues are usually one of the big ones in there. curricular issues. Um, that's where we would really see a lot of the traffic um, as a peer advisor there. Um, And that kind of continued with me a little bit into uh, professional as well as my office that I work with. So the Pathway for Success program is part of that larger academic advising and exploration center at Whitewater. And we work with first year and exploring students. Um, so my program is mostly first year students. Uh, but again, if they're still kind of exploring, they stay with us and we'll help them kind of navigate those experiences there.
1: And um, JP, I, I know um, you have been very active in Nakada and, and a number of different roles. But how did Nakata first come on your radar? What was your, your first experience with Nakata?
3: So, besides uh, Becky, who was heavily involved in Nakata for a while, um, when I first started at Whitewater, another advisor was also getting onboarded with me uh, within the AAC. And that was Abby Windsor, and she went through the K-State Masters um, Advising uh, Program. There was a uh, advisor at uw uh for a couple of years before coming to Whitewater, and so she was. We got close just through the onboarding process, kind of working together. And she's like, "Hey, I'm gonna, i want to go to this uh, conference. It's at this time the annual conference is in Minneapolis, so a short five-ish hour drive for us, so definitely reasonable and." uh university the office had professional development funds so we were able to make use of that and so she took me there and um kind of took me under her wing um at the time she was part of uh the diversity committee which was um the formal name of the inclusion engagement committee so she's like hey you know based on our conversation you might consider coming to this or at least you can Join me with that. And so that was my first taste of kind of a committee leadership of Nakata. And just from there, it blossomed. And yeah, now I'm involved in quite a few things.
0: Yeah, quite a few. I mean, you're co chair of the Virtual Region 3 and 5 conference, uh, interim chair of the Sustainable Nakata Leadership Committee, and probably a whole host of other things that are like maybe even unofficial, but you're tagged along with as well, because that's usually how it works. How do you find doing all that plus your current work balancing it all? And also, how is the planning for the virtual conference going?
3: (laughs) Stay with us. We'll be right back.
1: You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start.
3: yeah so let me first ask the like bouncing doing it all um at times I don't let's just be real, especially right now in covid it it's impossible to do everything um and still be sane so it for for me the, like the other things like being a doctoral student working on my dissertation that's been another stressor through all this and um I mean it just takes some time to remind yourself on why you do these things um Take time to take care of yourself is important. And so those, those are things I really um, had to remind myself now uh, during this time and just prioritize. Uh, I mean, we have to keep going back to this, but we always have these conversations with students about time management, those skills. And so that is critically important for me, at least right now, given everything that's going on. Uh, so. Uh, I have this big whiteboard actually right in front of my computer on the other side of the screen that I'm looking at at home. And in the office, I have even a bigger one there that I keep track of everything. I have a little notebook to keep, um, with all the key projects, what's going on. Uh, so it's just really prioritizing for me um, to kind of stay on top of it all. And the other thing is just rely on others. You don't have to do it all yourself. So I'll, between all these things i'm working with a team and so just being upfront and honest and just talking to them has gone a long way and people have been super super supportive i mean that's what we kind of get with the nature of the people who are working with uh in the field of advising so that's the short version is like i can't do it all myself but others are there and it's a team uh talking about the conference region three and five the virtual um so that is that in itself has been an experience um overall the planning is going great so don't get me wrong the planning is going great but um because i know matt you were also co-chairing one of the conferences as well can't remember yours was like a few more weeks after mine was slated to go right last year
0: yeah so ours was going to be in like um early April or I'm sorry, some later April, but then it was one of the last ones where it's like, are we going to get canceled or not? What's going to happen? And then it's like, Nope, they're all canceled.
3: Yeah. So ours was like a week or two weeks out. I can't remember exactly when they made the call, but I'm sitting there like just tracking everything, seeing all the different, uh, institution states that put in travel restrictions all the presenters pulling out i'm like oh gosh yeah. that's just, just thinking if this goes this is gonna be fun but then they canceled it so i got looped into continuing on uh to do the re- uh, the virtual conference this year um and it's been great working with region three uh we've had a couple meetings already just uh between the co-chairs and the uh region chairs and Um, I'm really excited um, about what this is going to be. It's a great way to kind of pull from both conferences the uniqueness of, or the regions, uh, the uniqueness of them. And I think coming together, it's going to be a a great experience. And we're really trying to find ways to kind of make it as seamless as possible to network across the region. Because, I mean, there's great networking that happens within the region conferences. but now we can actually have another region that's really right next to us, um, not too far away. Um, and so it's going to be a fun experience. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, but I mean, so- switching to a virtual is a whole different experience. And luckily, the EO um, is on top of it. And they're supporting us along the way. And um, I just think it's going to be a great experience, just like the annual conference was.
1: Yeah, I think we, we're we at a point where a lot, an awful lot has been learned about virtual conferences and making them the, as, as good as they can be, utilizing the virtual space properly, I suppose. But speaking of conferences, JP, I thought um, we mentioned in your bio some of the um, topics you've presented on, and maybe before we delve into mm-hmm. to flipped advising, um, I thought it'd be interesting maybe just if you talked a, a brief overview about maybe advising and, and gen z or um and maybe having a growth mindset I, mm-hmm. I would certainly be interested in hearing a little bit more about you know your presentations on those and and your thoughts on those
3: yeah so um i know gen z has become a very popular uh topic i mean the, if if you look back in a couple of years um we've seen quite a few sessions um about the annual um region i'm sure at the international conference as well because i mean gen z for those who aren't aware is the population i mean there's some with any generations when it first starts there's some differences in like the age bracket i've seen 95 to 2000 been like the start date to about 2020 is what they're saying now i mean we'll see i think covid is going to be like this next (laughs) group So it'll be curious to see what's next after them. But in essence, for the traditional students, these are the students that we're serving right now in institutions of higher education. That's Gen Z. And I mean, what is interesting about them is their life experiences. I think one of the big motivating factors across this generation is they live through the financial crisis. That is a defining moment for them. They saw what happened to their families. They saw what happened across the world as a result of that. Um, and I think it really has shaped some of the career paths and w- their goals of these students. Um, I'm not sure about you all, but I keep having conversations about s- with students who are want to go into a career cause it, to make sure it makes good money. And a lot of that can be traced back to that experience with their family, uh, with the financial crisis, well, at least within the U S. Um, and then another kind of interesting factor within the U.S. is that, you know, these students have always, as a country in the U.S., they've always been at war with something. So 9 11 kind of kickstarted that, um, the war and within the Middle East that we're still seeing today and we still have that presence in there. And, um, and so that is like a big factor that kind of has, shaped their viewpoint. Um, and and then the other thing is obviously the uh, climate change, global warming is another uh, huge factor uh, for this group of students as well. So it's kind of interesting to see how that is a motivating, or how that motivates them to kind of do some of the things that they are looking to do, whether it's career wise or just being active. Can um, grassroots grassroots organizing all around the topic there so gen z is kind of very an interesting group in terms of also how they interact so they prefer in-person communication but a lot of people assume that's face-to-face they're fine doing virtual as well they want to have this in-person interaction so if it's uh, a video conference through a screen that's great for them um, Yes, they're kind of this texting group, uh, short language in there, but they really do crave that one-on-one communication, um, kind of that face-to-face communication to talk things through. So that's kind of a unique thing, and I think that's going to be very interesting to see how that shifts or how higher education responds to that, especially now that we're in the COVID slash post-COVID uh, or when we get to the post-COVID um, area, how that some of the changes that have happened might stay.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then a couple years ago, you presented um, with a few other um, colleagues about how a growth mindset, discussing the growth mindset and how a fixed mindset leads to like a recursive process, Mm -hmm. but growth mindset helps to embrace challenges and view obstacles as a way to experiment and kind of like this journey. Are there any tips that you Mm -hmm. have for advisors uh, or advising departments on, you know, how they can help their students embrace a growth mindset?
3: Yeah. So I think um, the growth mindset is mm-hmm. a very applicable thing for academic advisors and really comes down to some of the languages and actions that we take. Um, I mean, you can go online, and you can see multiple graphs or charts that kind of talk about how to change the language from the growth to a fixed. And the idea is to help kind of promote learning, help to overcome uh, those obstacles, to help believe in oneself, um, kind of like you alluded to in the question. And I think it really comes down to, with advisors, we really do have the power to help students realize their potential, Uh, and especially when you think about the recursive process. So for those who aren't familiar with the recursive process, it's a three-part kind of cycle triangle and how it's usually described um, and it really starts with the top like students come in with this mindset that, you know this is hard because I do not belong or I'm not smart enough and then that leads to isolation, low help seeking avoidance, kind of studying alone few friends which then also adds leads to like worse performance in school. And then it goes back to the top of this is hard because I'm not smart enough or don't belong. So it's a cycle that's kind of in many ways hard to break. But if you think about our work with students as academic advisors, we can interject at any point during that cycle to help students. And of really, it just comes back to it's just affirming, you know, you are enough that you belong there um, and they can do this. So that's why. I think for us, that language really comes into play in how you kind of work it in with students and how you use it to address specific challenges that students are facing. Because at any point in time, that one conversation with you have that you have with the student can be that lasting, impactful one that really says, you know, hey, actually, I can do this. I belong here. And that could be the difference between a student succeeding or dropping out.
1: Yeah, um, thank you for for sharing uh, your insights into to those two topics. Uh, really interesting, and one of the uh, things I suppose the other interesting aspects, and um, you know, maybe the the the, the big topic we're going to delve into is in relation to flipped advising. Uh, Matt mentioned it's in the the title of uh, your doctoral thesis, but. When we spoke to George Steele, George was telling us about, you know, how he came across Flipped Advising as an approach. How how did you first come across it and, and what was it about the Flipped Advising approach
3: that spoke to you? Yeah, I first came across it actually from George. Um, so he presented, it was Rosemont. So this was twenty region 5 2016 i can't remember exactly which one i have to go back and look Uh, but as in rosemont illinois um, that uh, region 5 conference and george actually went to his pre-conference session on it and i also remember that wendy troxel was there as well so now the director of research at nakata i feel like she that I miss, my have uh, mischaracterized what her title is, but, um, but at the time she was uh, at Illinois State, um, in their doctoral program in higher ed, and so I just remember distinctly having a conversation with them, just kind of talking about the idea of advising as a teaching and learning practice, and um, how some of the classroom principles can be applied, uh, to it, and. In the through that conversation it just something sparked on in me and i started kind of looking into it researching it and i'm like talked to george quite a few times I'm like you know what this is something i want to study because i firmly believe it's um a valid approach and it's definitely something i found here working through my dissertation um uh, this this pilot study i did that i mean it it's a valid approach to advising that really allows us to accomplish something else than um, some of the other ab- advising approaches can do
0: yeah and you're getting ready to defend on that dissertation real soon
3: <laughs> yeah so i am getting ready to f- polishing up those final drafts to submit to my committee and then yeah i'll be dis- uh, defending right before christmas december 22nd so it's a mad dash to the end here that's for sure <laughs>
1: and maybe jp um I, I I don't know how much you can get into um, the your your doctoral thesis, but can can you talk to us um, a, a little yeah. bit about what what it, what it was that you undertook in in that study?
3: Yeah, so my methods. Um my research methodology is a mixed method action research so uh, i chose that specifically because it allows me to kind of pull data from the quantitative and qualitative side so i did some interviews and also looked um at this department um they had an advising survey that they've been doing for a while so i was able to kind of pull some data from there um and then interviewed both some advisors and some students. But what really kind of drove me towards action research is the idea of um, partnering with the, in essence, the research setting. So the department, the social work department here, to do this advising approach in a sustainable way, in a way that um, they were on board and kind of like the idea. So it's a way that they saw that um, they could help improve their advising, um, And they – it's, again, really sustainable because a lot of some research is you're looking at it and you kind of, in some cases, force this approach onto um, the advising model um, in this case. So if you're looking about advising the model or the situation in there. So this is something that I wanted to be lasting, something I didn't want to impose on. And I really wanted something that, you know, there was genuine buy-in on because I feel like that really – can help with the study and help validate the approach to advising. So that's kind of a little bit of how I got into um, this and how it got structured. And so some of the big findings I found um, was, you know, as George probably explained, with flipped academic advising, you have these modules, whether for us, it's a learning management system. it could also be paper-based, some things that you can have students do beforehand. And what I found is, you know, that central place was huge um, for both the students and the advisors. So a central place to look at, to prep for questions, uh, to help prepare for the advising meeting. And from the advisors, it's something that they could reference during the advising meeting. So they didn't feel like they had to cover some of those transactional components, such as, you know, hey, you should take this class, this class, this class, because the way they had these modules set up in the LMS um, allowed kind of facilitate students to go through that. So. When they came to the meetings, it wasn't so much about that. It might have been just like, hey, I just, this is what I got going through this. Can you confirm this all looks good? Or is there any other situations um, that I need to be aware of? And then that allowed to shift the conversation to more of those other components. What are you doing to support your college career. Again, with COVID, it's like, how are you doing? Uh was another big finding in there. It's like, allowed me to check in with my advisees to really see how they are doing with that transition. Um, and then when topics came up in the conversation, the advisors were able to say, hey, check out this module. Go look here. Um, I think this will give you a good overview. And then if you got questions about it, come back to me and we can discuss it. Um, so that's kind of one of the big things. And I guess the other thing that kind of plays off of that is how the advising means, how the advisors prepare for them, the style was very much that like, hey, let's get away from this transactional component, these classes. Let's really talk about the larger pack- picture of, all right, so here you are in your college career. What else are you going to do to um, kind of support the academic side? Um, what are you what are your plans post? Um, undergrad. So grad school, jobs, um, for social work, they have um, a practicum or like an NS, it's internship that they do in the last uh, semester-ish, summer to semester. So prepping for that, um, what kind of field do you want to go into? So those conversations that really can help drive uh, the other aspects of their undergraduate career in there. And then I think the other thing that I found that was very interesting was the idea of that, again, the central location, but more so from a communication tool, Uh, I found it was very interesting, uh, where the where the the students who so part of my study was also looking at those who were not in the flip devising group. And what happened with COVID is um, with everything shifting online, the, the, the social work department decided to expand this LMS course to all of their department's advisees. Uh, so all this work we did was al- allow them to kind of expand it to provide those resources to all students. And what I found in the non-Flipped advising participants is they use the LMS course announcements and interacted with those quite a bit. So talking about resources like, hey, here are some virtual resources for you to help with that transition. Um, talking about you know fall classes preparation, those things um uh, so it's another communication tool that um those students interact with that i mean i know we know as advisors we can email students all the time sometimes they might not get it um or fully notice it because let's be real our students get bombarded right and especially right now with coveted being everything virtual uh I, I can only imagine what our students email boxes look like so by putting some of these targeted messages in a place that they're going anyways um, is another kind of interesting finding uh, from my study. That's like a lot just to boil down to a quick few findings in there. Um, But those are like the main themes.
0: I know, but I think you mentioned a lot of great points that especially if let's say an advisor listens to this or they've gone to a presentation on flipped advising and they want to maybe implement that at their institution, but maybe they get a little pushback because, well, that's not how we do it. You bring up some great tips and points where they can use that as like, hey, this is selling points. So this is why we should do it. And I think even now with with like you're mentioning with COVID, I mean, having something like this does free up more time and let's say in an appointment to really just even check in and see how is everything going on in their world right now mm-hmm. and moving from there with, with the conversation.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it really sparks the conversation of what is the role of an academic advisor? So uh, it kind of goes back to that age old question of we do more than just classes. Um, So I think that my piece of advice for those who are looking to kind of implement this or start the conversation is, you know, what are some of the common questions, common challenges? Um, Also, looking at what your learning outcomes or goals are in the office. If you don't have those, that's a good place to start uh, because the idea behind the flipped um, advising group is to take the flipped classroom approach and applying it. And with classes, you gotta have outcomes. What are the goals? What are the learning outcomes um, that you want students to reach as a result of this class? So the same thing really does apply with advising. Uh, So just kind of having those conversations and then, yeah, I think, Just the ability to free up the conversation and to, I think, really empower our students to be more prepared for advising meetings can go a long way because, I mean, we can sit there and we can meet with students. But, I mean, if we're walking through students how to read a degree audit and that means you have to do these courses, you lose 15, 20 minutes of an appointment just by going through that. That could be spent on these other co-curricular things, these life skill things to really kind of talk about. You know, with first year students, how that transition's going, with you get closer to the sophomores and beyond, it's like, all right, what else are you going to do besides classes? And with the seniors, like, all right, what's next?
1: And I suppose, JP, I'm just right. I'm aware that, you know, not all our listeners are advisors. We get people across the higher ed spectrum. I'm wondering, do you think that there are components of the, the flipped advising approach, what we're we're talking about in terms of empowering students that other Um, higher ed professionals could potentially look to bring into their work?
3: I mean, absolutely, because, again, it comes back to the model of empowering students. I mean, if we can find ways to assist students kind of navigating the university to understand the various offices and their roles and what we do to support students, and to provide them the knowledge so that when they connect with that office they're a little bit more prepared having a better understanding of it i think that can go a long way um to really help students and help the institution in that department's goals uh so if there's ways we can use the learning management system great but again i really want to stress it doesn't have to be in there um I mean, George, I'm not sure if he talked about this uh, in your interview, but he really goes back to Virginia Gordon with her work on undeclared students. And that was a book she would give students, uh, worksheets. The same thing can be accomplished that way. So it's just intentionally structuring these interactions so that students can accomplish a specific goal or learning outcome.
0: Yeah, no, he definitely did talk a lot about Virginia and also about like the workbooks and, and all of that. Um and great conversation that we had with him. Now, you, with mentioning, like, undeclared, undecided students, now, you, now, in your role, you know, you talked mm-hmm. about what you do in your office and also working with, like, undecided students or major exploration students. Do you find sometimes that um, students hearing that I'm undecided or undeclared or exploratory, they sometimes have a negative connotation of that?
3: Yeah, absolutely, Um, because, I mean, I... Th- <laughs> a lot of students are a little anxious. Like, I don't know. I I mean, all my friends are, have a major that they're working towards and you know, I'm thinking this, but I'm not sure. And I think a lot of the pressure is like, you know, college is not cheap too. Uh, So they want to make sure that they're working towards something so they can graduate in four years. Um, And having that kind of declared major is one step in that and kind of, reassuring them that they're on the right path. And so really with me, one of the things I start with from literally day one is I tell all my students that, you know, I my own experience is I didn't choose my major or find my final major until my junior year. Um, And I could have graduated in four years. I did a little longer for another reason, but um, just kind of relaying some personal experience, uh, whether it's you or some students you work with can go a long way. And then the other thing I always tell my students is, you know what? Let's be real. We have a lot of students who are changing their major in the first year. Um, That's Mm -hmm. in my mind, all first year students are undecided students. Because, I mean, it's Mm -hmm. very few students who come into college, university, um, will actually graduate with that first major. There's definitely going to be the the few that do that power through, but there's gonna be slight changes. Maybe it's just a change of an emphasis uh, within a major, um, but some of it can be a huge curricular change. I wanted to go into engineering. That didn't <laughs> happen there, obviously, um, but that, those are some of the things that I really do kind of talk about with my students to kind of ease that burden and, and kind of break down the myth of what it means to be an undeclared exploring student.
0: Yeah, and I changed my major when I was a junior uh, as well. So, like, I was a, a transfer student, well, technically freshman, but I took two years of college while in high school. So, when I uh, got to uh, Cal State San Bernardino, I had enough credits where I was a junior. And I was a math major at the time because I was a math tutor at uh, Marina Valley College because math came easy to me. And when I was like deciding on what major I had to do, I was like, well, I'm good at math. I wasn't interested in it, but I was like, well, I guess this is what I'm going to do. Got to Cal State San Bernardino, took a couple more math classes, just felt bored and just wasn't motivated at all. And my EOP counselor was like, well, if you don't want to do this, let's pick something else. But I'm like, but I'm a junior. She's like, it doesn't matter. She's like, don't do something you're not going to care about. Um, And she's like, well, what else are you interested in? I said, I don't know. She's like, well, what other class have you taken that you seemed interested? In? I was like, well, I took a couple of psychology classes. Those were fun. She's like, well, do you maybe want to do that? And it literally was like, we need to flip a coin and, and decide because you need to pick classes. You would have no more GEs to take. You literally have only the major classes. And so, yeah, that was, that was my path. Otherwise, I was probably going to be a something to do with math, maybe a math teacher, but i um, kind of glad that didn't happen.
1: <laughs> and JP, one of the things I suppose, thinking, um, you mentioned earlier that COVID might be a, a demarcation point in terms of the next generation i'm wondering we um recording this as we head towards the end of, of november it's going to come out in, in december but we head towards the end of 2020 um and i'm wondering mm-hmm. are there are there any reflections that you personally are going to take for, from this year you, you you put in your dissertation or anything that you've learned um you know in in the last 12 months that you're going to take forward into your work for 2021
3: yeah um I think one of the things that COVID has shown us is the ability to do things virtually, um, that we don't have to do everything in person and kind of going with that as being flexible with that. So um, I think what's going to happen what's going to be interesting to see moving forward is how are institutions going to shift back to the in-person component when they're able to do that fully kind of the full um in-person experience are they still going to have some virtual elements um i think we will uh my office we're already talking about that actually it's like hey you know we figure out this experience um let's be accessible i think that's not a elements. What can we do to support students to be accessible? Because how many students might have a full-time job and thus can't come and travel to the institution to meet with you, but still want this kind of face-to-face meeting? So these video chats, that could be more prevalent than there. And that's something that they can do from a smart device or quickly pull up the computer for 30 minutes over their lunch break. Um, The ability to kind of work and like, I'm thinking from my non-traditional students as well, um, like, you know, what can we do to support them? And so if we can, from the advisors, be at home and meet with students at night due to, say, our life experience, that might be helpful. And these shifts, these tools um, kind of have allowed us to do that, where now I have a voice over IP phone that I can literally call from my computer and it's coming from my office number. So something that, like a phone call, I had to be in the office. Now I can be somewhere else to do. So I think one of those, my biggest reflection is the flexibility and how we're going to meet with students moving forward. And I think that is going to be very interesting to see where we end up.
0: And then with your institution, um, are you completely virtual? Is there like a hybrid and how spring semester looking?
3: Yeah. So um, right now we are in a hybrid. Uh, So classes are all hybrid. However, uh, we, the university has asked various offices that if you can do your job remotely, be remote. So I haven't really touched foot on campus since way back in March. I've had to pop in to pick up a few things, but really I've been at home since March. Um, and that's kind of the plan that we're looking to do for the spring uh, right now is just do a hybrid of classes. But who knows what's going to happen here in the next few months, especially where things are trending at the end of November now. Um I mean, I'm a little scared to see where, where this turns out because there's a very good chance uh, that we might be forced to be full virtual. Um, but I guess the other thing I've had to mention is my institution, Come, we were one of those that said, you know, come Thanksgiving, we're going virtual for the last couple weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we didn't shift our schedule up um, to start a little bit earlier because we had the state law that really didn't allow us to do that. Um So we decided as an institution just to do the hybrid all the way through our Thanksgiving break. And then these last couple of weeks, we'll just be virtual um, in there. And then we'll pick up kind of in that same model for the spring semester, but shifting our spring break back until April to kind of see um, where we can go. But again, I'm curious to see how we'll actually start the spring semester.
1: And I suppose, um, JP, maybe as we look to to wind up, I'm just curious in in relation to to you. I mean, you you told told us at the the end of the the bio about your your family and and, and your dog. What are your, away from uh, academia outside of the higher ed world, what are some of your interests?
3: Yeah, I love just getting outside, whether it's hiking biking, so going on bike rides as a family. I have a bike trailer I take the little ones in. Um, I mean, we're I'm blessed that here in the state of Wisconsin, we have great numbers of state and national parks we're able to kind of go through. Um, so those are kind of my main things, just going out as a family, getting out, enjoying the, the nice environment, the scenery that we have here. Um, otherwise, hitting the water, uh, Wisconsin has a ton of great lakes uh so you can always find me near a lake as well um and yeah and just really spending time with my family that's kind of what i like to do at this point um and that's how i kind of relax
0: nice and that's i think it's a great way to, to end this interview and a lot of times priority is first priority is always the family so definitely appreciate jp that you're we got to make this work uh, for you to be on the podcast i know i promised you like eight months ago so Glad it finally worked out with our schedules and I look forward to looking on Facebook on maybe the 22nd of December and seeing that, hey, you did pass and everything is good to go and we can call you doctor. Yeah,
3: well, I appreciate it. Uh, thank you again for the opportunity. Yeah, I'm glad we were able to make this work. Um, You know what? I didn't really matter or really didn't mind how long it took us. But uh, as long as we got there and I just I'm glad that we were able to have this conversation. And actually, this worked out better because now I can talk a little bit more about my dissertation. So and some of the, the cool findings like writing this has gotten me excited about what's next and see where we go with this approach. So no, thank you all.
0: JP, thanks again for joining us on this podcast episode. Again, I'm glad we finally made this work and hope listeners gain some tidbits of knowledge through your interview. And if you want to contact JP on his research on Flipped Advising or just want to connect, JP's email is v-i-l-l-a-v-i-c-jp23 at uww.edu. But before we wrap up this episode, let's give some shout outs. First shout out goes to Jennifer Aron from San Francisco State University. She messaged me and said, I keep hearing with delight your podcast. Kudos to you. A pleasure to listen to them. Well, it's a pleasure to be able to read that message. And thank you so much, Jennifer, for that. What other shout outs do we have?
1: I'd like to say well done to UCAT and LVSA who are the representative bodies for advising in the UK and the Netherlands and they held a fantastic celebration of advising and personal tutoring last week. I want to give a shout out to the Centre for Higher Education Practice at the University of Southampton they put Adventures in Advising behind door number four in their advent calendar. So thank you very much for that. Also want to give a shout out to Kevin Thomas from the University of Central Arkansas. Kevin tweeted, okay, okay. I know I'm playing catch up on Adventures in Advising, but episode 12 may be my favorite so far. Also a shout out to Murray's Birmingham at the Cork Institute of Technology, CIT. She recommended us to her colleagues on Twitter, and we appreciate that recommendation.
0: Well, we have reached the end of another episode of Adventures in Advising. Thanks so much for listening in. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss out on our upcoming episodes. And find us on social media, that's Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Advising Podcast. I hope you have a great rest of your week and listen in to our next episode coming out in a couple weeks. Take care and keep advising.